Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. We're continuing our, our series through this letter from the half-brother of James, Jesus, pastoring a church in Jerusalem, the epicentre of great persecution in a time of famine, difficulty, economic difficulty, Living in foreign lands, we're told, he is writing to people who are not living in their homelands with all the complications and insecurities that gives us. And because he's writing in a time where people are struggling, this issue of trials comes up time and time and time again. And so some of the themes get repeated and James comes back to them, especially the beginning at the end. So today we're looking at the same theme, really, from similar angles, but... I, th- I don't think it's, it's too much to repeat these things because we all go through difficulties and honestly just trials just mark life. Job 5.7 says that we are born to trouble. As sparks fly upward, we are just born to trouble. And it could be so many different things. Like Lily said, you've been going through exams and the pressures and the academic pressure that can be real and sometimes not performing as well as you thought and all of those extra pressures that kind of go around that. Or feeling lonely sometimes and wishing that you had a spouse and all of the difficulties and pressures that can feel. Sometimes having a spouse and all of the marital tensions that go along with being married and the pressures that come with that. Sometimes it's just wanting to have kids and unable to have your own children and the kind of pressures that go along with that. Family members, sickness, mental health issues, family members dying. All of these things and sometimes just quiet pressures that wear you down over years and years and years with ill health or relational tensions. We all go through trials. So I think to touch on this again is is not undue. And James's concern in his letter here, which I think is like marked in his absence when you read it. James writing to people who are really suffering seems to have very little interest in trying to help these people out of their trials. If you notice that nowhere in the letter does he write, this is how you withdraw from your trials. This is your escape plan. This is how to get out of it. His primary concern is who you become in the middle of your difficulty. Who you become and how you respond is James's concern in this letter. Because he knows there is a possibility for trials in life to make you bitter or to make you better. He knows there is a possibility, the potency within trials to actually do something and produce something good in your life. It seems like James actually sees trials as an opportunity for new spiritual life to be born in your heart, which is a radically different way than the way we often look at trials. We often look at it like, how can I escape from this? What is my quickie exit from this emotional pressure? How do I work around this? James sees it as an opportunity for growth. When you study the Bible very often, you know, what we're trying to do is we're not trying to find our own lives first and foremost in the Bible. We're trying to find what the authors of the actual Bible meant to say. So when we're reading like the letter of James, our primary concern is what was James trying to communicate? Not what would I like to hear this morning? Because we all have lots of desires about things that we'd love God to say to us and promise about our future life, etc. That's not our first concern. 
Our first concern is what did James actually mean to get across? And the way we do that, like just simple Bible study stuff, is we often try and just look for repeated themes, repeated words, repeated ideas, repeated phrases. And if they come up time and time again, you can think, okay, something's going on here. And in the latter part of this passage that Lily read for us, twice over, James gives this analogy, this picture of giving birth. So in verse 15, he says this, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So it's this idea that sin has this opportunity to produce death within us. But then it comes up again in chapter, in verse 18, where, where James says of the Lord this time, of his own will, God, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So sin has this possibility to produce, to give birth to death in us. But the Lord, by the word of truth, actually can bring forth or give birth to life that we might become, he says, the first fruits of all creation. So James is giving us this contrast of what can happen in the middle of trials that either through our sinful heart, death can be produced and give birth or life can be produced and give birth to, to life. He has these two options. So all I want to do just for these next few moments is walk through the process that will lead us to death and then the process that will lead us to life. Because in James' mind, every moment of trial has the um, possibility of producing death in us or producing life. And we want to walk in life. That's what I'm guessing. Can I get an amen? All right. So I know it's cold in here today. I don't know why it's cold, but we're going to heat things up. The first section is this, when James talks, he's really focusing on our heart. And the second section, he focuses on the Lord. And so the first section is, it is a little bit more introspective. It's actually looking at the movements of our own heart and what happens with our desires and our passions. And Proverbs 4.23 tells us that we should watch over our heart, that we should be a careful watchman over the own emotions and the feelings in our heart, because we're told from our heart comes forth life. That actually our heart is one of the most valuable assets that we have and we need to watch over it. So it is important that we actually get to be able to realise and notice very quickly what's happening in our heart. Like medically, we want to be, just be aware sometimes what's going on with this. or what, With our heart, we need to be astute learners so that we can discern. My heart is adrift here and watch that so that we can not be led astray. So we're going to do a little bit of introspection at first and then we're going to look at the Lord. So James talks about three steps in a process process that will lead us to death the first is we go through a process of temptation and then we have desires that give birth to sin and then lastly sin when we're told is when it's fully grown gives birth to, to death so the first thing is this we're tempted when trials come trials are a moment where we actually can face acute temptation so you might feel lonely you might feel like you would really like a boyfriend or a girlfriend or you'd like to be married. And if that goes on long enough, you might be then tempted to date the wrong kind of person. And if you're a Christian, you might be tempted to date someone who isn't a Christian and who won't help, help you spiritually because of the sense of loneliness that you have. There is a temptation in that. You might be mistreated at work or overlooked or feel undervalued. And then the temptation when you finish work to overuse alcohol or to watch stuff online that you shouldn't be or to release pressure in a way that is unhealthy there is a temptation in that you might find yourself lonely in a city struggling to find your group your gang and there is a temptation then to 
compromise your own morals, compromise your conscience, compromise your faith to try and fit in with another group because you just want to have some friends. Trials bring temptations. And we learn two things about temptations from this passage. The first thing is this. You are not tempted by God. Temptation comes from within our own hearts. He says this in verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. It's this idea of when things go wrong and you're feeling the temptation to sin and to walk away from the Lord, it's not the Lord trying to entice your heart away. Sometimes we can feel that, can't we? Like, hey, there is this situation and it all feels like it's, it feels like the Lord's kind of laying the path for me here. Maybe I should follow that. Like if you've ever been shopping and you're going clothes and there's like, there's one item left, you know, and you rationalize it. I feel like the Lord left this one for me, you know, and it's like, and it was slightly reduced. So you come home. I think the Lord provided this for me because it was the last, and you just kind of build this picture. Sometimes you can do that with temptation and sin. Like it just feels like the Lord led me to this place. I don't know. And it's kind of, I think it's, and then what you do is you blame God for the temptation and where you end up which is so embedded in our culture at the moment. This idea that actually, if I feel some sense of wanting to go this way or that way, there's actually not me, it's some other forces that I'm really kind of like just a small pawn in the middle of it. Like that's just the way I was made maybe. This is the way God made me. I can't help it. This is how God made my personality and my emotions. And so what do we do? We put the blame there. Thinking that it will buy us freedom. The truth is, if we blame God for the temptation and we don't take responsibility, we do at least two things that are problematic. First, we actually have to trade in our own human dignity for that freedom. Because if we say, God, this is on you, you're saying that you are nothing more than just a, a bunch of emotions and hormones and neurons that you are just at the whim of. We're just animals, basically. And so to buy moral freedom to do other things, you have to trade in your actual human dignity, that you have moral responsibility before a creator God. And the second thing is, if you actually blame God for the temptation, we lose the ability to change. So we say, it's on, it's on you, God. It's not on me. Well, this is just who I am then. If we never take responsibility, if we never take on any sense of like, I might need to change in this, then we never actually have the possibility to change and grow into who God actually calls us to be. So the first thing is this, trials do come from the Lord, but temptation comes from our own heart. We must not impute temptation to God. That's the first thing. And the second thing to say is this, and I think this is super important. Temptation is very different to sin. They are totally different things. And what can happen, I think, in our culture that places such a high value on emotion and feelings that we feel tempted to sin sometimes, to act in a way that is not in accordance to God's will. We know that. We feel these desires and these urges. And because we place such a high value on emotions, we feel like feeling that temptation is essentially the same as sinning. And so we listen to the emotion and we think, well, if I've got this far, I'm already like in the doghouse with God. I might as well just carry on with this and follow through on my, my desires. We listen to the temptation and think and equate that with sin and say, well, if I'm here already, I'll just keep going. I'm already here. So what? 
But the difference between temptation and sin is the difference between heaven and hell. We're told that Jesus himself, the infinitely pure Son of God, was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. So he knew temptation, he faced it. I don't understand the complexity of what that would have felt like for him, but we know he was tempted with all of the things of this life and yet never acted on that temptation. And so we must not confuse temptation. And I think a lot of us will be saved from a lot of sin if we think clearly. You think, I feel this desire. That does not mean that you have yet sinned. So run from sin. Don't think I'm here already. Flee from it. Temptation and sin are very different things. And we have to watch this because the world around us is just pouring and pouring temptation into our lives, isn't it? In all sorts of ways and manners and means and social media and devices and everything around us is trying to... And because we're in the middle of this world, it's just fluxing with passion and energy and desires for things that aren't God. We can feel our heart tugged and we kind of can then begin to get deceived and think we're already there and then sin. So we have to think clearly. Temptation and sin aren't the same thing. The second thing we find out this, so we get tempted. The next process, if we will allow death to come into our life, is this, that our desires give birth to sin. He says, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when he has conceived, gives birth to sin. So the question then goes like, well, I do have desires for things in life. What do I do with them? Do I just crush them and no desires, the kind of Buddhist mentality, if I don't have any desires, then I'll be okay. Quite the contrary in in the scriptures. We all have human God-given desires and passions. What what James is talking about here is this word epithumia. It's desires, but it's got this preposition epi on it. Epi, which means upon, in addition, something over and above, something on top of normal desires. Some translations translate this as lust. It is about sexual desires, but it's far more than that. It's far more than just sexual desires. What it is about is a desire that is over the top. A desire for things in this life that lead you to a place where you would want that thing more than you actually want God. So it's okay to want acceptance in life. It's okay to want position in life. It's okay to want money. It's okay to want want to be married, to have kids. It's okay to want sexual pleasure. It's okay to want all of these things. But it is not okay when it becomes an over-desire so that you would be willing to chase all of those desires at the expense of following God. So when push comes to shove in a moment and you know that the Lord might want you to do this, but actually your true desire is for that, if you walk in that direction, you know you are being led by an over-desire, a desire that is actually more than what you want for God. Because we can go to church, can't we? We can sing these songs, say, all I want is you. I just want to be like you, Jesus, as long as I have a husband. Or like, Lord, I will be so joyous in you. I will sing your praises forevermore with the saints in glory. But as long as I get that promotion, as long as I have that, what Charles was saying, that picture of the beautiful life, then I'll just sing, I will sing your praises. As to what Jesus says to some disciples, he says, your lips are with me, but your heart is far from me. 
It says like you're giving all the right words off, but actually your desires are leading you away from me. And that can happen in our life. So we need to be those who watch over our heart and are super aware of where our hearts might be leading us astray. So let me just give us some diagnostic questions because I know you asked for these on a Sunday morning. To discern where you might be wanting things more than you actually want God. Let me ask you some questions. What feels too important in your life to let go of? Like stuff, relationships, people, things, plans for your future. If someone asks you, like, let go of that, you're not going to have that in this life. What feels too important and at what point do you go, nope, I'm keeping that to myself? Is there anything or anyone who dictates your life instead of God and his word? Is there any desires in your life that you're, if someone plotted your life, they would say, actually, you're plotting the course of your life around that passion and not the Lord. Is there anything in your life that says that? says what if you didn't have something in your life in the future that would not no, I've really butchered that question that's because I wrote it and I don't even know my own question what would make life not feel worth living for if I don't if, like, everything's fine but I'm still banking on the fact that I will get x in the future and if you were told you didn't get x in the future what would make life feel like it's not worth living I love God but what I really want is X here's my last question just to help you watch over yourself what do you find yourself daydreaming about and by daydreaming today I think we probably mean googling when you've got nothing to do on an evening like the day's done like where are you googling and what are you googling what reels are you watching? What videos are you watching? Because they are probably an indication of where your heart is at. And that may not be a bad thing, but you need to be aware that where your attention is, those are the places where you are tempted to make them God things, not just good things. So we have to watch over our hearts because over-desires can lead to sin. And finally, sin leads to death, he tells us. He says in verse 15, then when sin has, con when it has conceived, it's this idea that we turn away from the Lord who is our husband and we are in the arms of our lover and then there is this conceiving that happens and it gives conceived sin and then sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. And it won't be probably a physical death straight away, but it will be a sense of something dying within your heart. Like you begin to walk away from the Lord and his purposes and something of his purposes in your life begins to fade and die. Something of the joy of the Lord begins to fade. Something of the peace of God begins to fade in your life. Things begin to die and life begins to get greyer and greyer as death takes over your soul. This is the process of death. And we need to be those who can just, like I said, just watch our hearts and where are we beginning to move towards that place? The sermon gets better from here because we now talk about the Lord. This is our heart. And James, he, he flips these two things because then he says in verse 16, do not be deceived, my brothers and my sisters, because he knows that when it comes to thinking about the Lord, we can so easily create a warped version of who God actually is. 
If you know this, if you've ever been like in tension with somebody or in your workplace or with someone, you will know that without the clarity of conversations and truth telling, etc., it is possible to create a false picture of who someone else is. Does anyone know this? Especially if you're not with them for much, you kind of like, you actually can create this false idea of someone's motives and intentions and, and what's going on and a separation can happen. I think a lot of what's happening in our culture today, that actually people are rejecting the Lord, they are walking away from him, they're saying no to Christianity in the Bible, but what they're actually rejecting is not the historical Jesus who lived and died and rose again for our sins, but actually a warped image of this man. And so I think a lot of our culture, all of London is actually rejecting not Jesus himself, but this false image, this deceived image of Jesus who all of us would probably walk away from and so we have to be super careful with the picture that we have in our minds about God A.W. Tozer famously said what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you because if you have a false image of God you are likely to walk away from him into death so we need to have a true biblical idea of who the Lord is so that we can walk towards him and find Life, And so what James does in this passage is he just teaches us who this God is and how you can come to him in times of trial. And so he just teaches us three things. The first thing he tells us is that the Lord, God himself, is a generous God. He says, don't be deceived. As in, in times of trial, you are likely to feel in your mind slightly confused about the truth. The emotions may turn your mind and deceive you just don't be deceived he says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above or as mandy pointed out one of the translations say cascades down from heaven that is the lord gives to us generously because what will happen when we go through trials we don't get an exam result that we hope for we find ourselves single many years after we hoped we'd actually be married. We find ourselves without children, whatever the trial might be, ill health, in hospital again, with your life clipped in ways that you never thought or imagined. When you go through times like that, the, you will be tempted to think that God is holding out on you. You think, like, because the logic will go like this, surely. God, he's the all-powerful, omnipotent one. He controls all things in his hands, right? Like, he can do all things. He's got the, the, the bag with all the goodies in it. He can do anything he likes, right? So if I don't get that thing, and God can do that thing, the logic goes, then he's just not being generous to it. Like, it must be something about his character that says, actually, for you, nah, I'll try and find someone more deserving. Or like, no, no, I'm busy over here, actually, in Ukraine. There's a lot of need right now. I haven't got time for you guys. You know, I need... And you can think, well, God's actually... Is he, is he holding out on me? Is, has God withheld good things from me? This is what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with, basically saying, look, look, there's this whole world of joy out there and God's holding out on you. Take from that one that God said no. It's always there. And so James says, no, don't be deceived. God is actually generous he says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above 
cascading down. God is generous in all that he does and he refers to all of creation and he calls the universe itself in to witness to the generosity of God because he says coming down from the father of lights referencing the moment in Genesis where God creates the heavens and the earth the lighting system of all that we have around us today. He calls in the world as a witness to say is the Lord generous in all that he does? And we look at the world and the universe and the unneeded, unnecessary expanse of the universe and the galaxies that we are a part of and the heights of the Himalayas and the depths of the ocean and the unnecessary diversity in creatures and animals and fish and birds and animals that live on the land. We look at all this unnecessary diversity and generosity and James calls in this as a witness and says, is the Lord not generous? Has he not abundantly given, cascaded over into creation all the good things that we see around us? And now would you, in a moment of trial and difficulty, would you call into question his generosity? Just call to mind some of the crazy animals that you like read about or like the black holes that Zach's teaching us about. You know, like the universe is crazy in the abundance of all of its diversity. Stop and wonder at the generosity and the giving nature of the Lord. And if we still want to doubt, we turn to Jesus Christ given to us where we're told in Romans 8, these words, 8.32, he, sorry, what then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, the father, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So God is gracious to us when things are going well and we feel like we're getting so much blessing in our life. And God is gracious and generous to us even when we go through trial because he knows things that we don't know. And he knows sometimes to give us things that we want will actually damage our lives. And sometimes withholding things will actually be a blessing and a gift to us because he is producing something far bigger, far richer, far deeper that will last far longer in our lives. He is always being generous to us. So don't be deceived if you're facing trials right now, tensions, pressures, weights in your life. God is being generous. Amen. That was a half-hearted I'm in, I think. You're like, really? It doesn't feel like... Don't be deceived, church. <laughs> Don't be deceived. Secondly, this. God never changes. This is good news. James 1.17. He carries on and he teaches these things. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James, you've got to imagine Genesis 1 here is referencing Genesis 1, the creation of all things. And he looks at the gods who created everything and then he turns his attention to the sun and the moon and the earth and the galaxy and all that is going on with our solar system. And he is noticing that obviously the shadows are changing. Life is in continual flux. We continue to revolve around the sun, changing and changing. Life continues to change and move on, often faster than we would hope hope it people get older people move on our lives change we change everything around us feels like it's changing and it can feel unnerving sometimes things that were good in our life sometimes change and we walk through seasons of life that feel like a desert patch 
And what can happen in those moments? You think, is the Lord changing now? Has he changed his mind? Is he thinking differently about me? I knew that I was loved by God then because life was good. I had a great job. I had family. Everything worked. Everything was around me. It felt good. I was in my sweet spot. Has God changed his view of who I am? Now I'm going through this dark and difficult patch. Maybe because I feel like I'm condemning myself. Maybe there is a little bit of condemning from the Lord. And as soon as that thought creeps in, you will be crushed. Because if the judge of the heavens and the earth, who you will one day stand before, if there is an inkling of a thought that he is against you, how will you ever have the energy to get up in the morning tomorrow? But what we're told is that the Lord never changes. If we were Pentecostal now, I might do a bit of congregational back and forth. Some of you will know, my Baptist brothers. God is good. Oh, and all the time. God is good. Amen. God is good. All the time. All the time. So when you're doing well, God is good. When things are going badly, what? God is good. When you get an A in your exam. When you get a D in your exam. God is good. When you get a promotion. You're half-hearted here, guys. Come on. <laughs> like, what happens when you walk into redundancy? God when you have a family and you have your first child. When things sadly go wrong with your children. God is good all the time. Amen. Through the highs and the lows, God is good. He never changes. His purposes for us are that we may flourish in life all the time. So we must never think that the Lord has changed his mind. The joy at our baptism, the joy when we are filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time, the joy that we sometimes taste in worship. We are just touching the reality of the love of God over us and that never changes Therefore, now, right now, we are under no condemnation from the Lord. So that's the second point that he teaches us. And the third thing is this. He has brought forth life in us already. For those who are Christians, we are walking, he says, as the first fruits of all creation. He actually turns his eyes kind of on ourselves now. And he says, Christians, you need to know the kind of miracle that has happened in your own life. Because this testifies to the goodness of God and the promises of God that he is keeping in your life. He references this whole idea of first fruits, the first fruits of creation. He's calling, recalling back to the Old Testament days where there would be a harvest brought to the temple in Jerusalem and there was a call once a year for the first fruits of your harvest to be brought before the Lord and so you would, you would have this land and you would gather in and what you gathered in the first percentages of that harvest you would take to the Lord and at least two things were important about these first fruits of these sheaves these grains that were brought to the Lord firstly these grains were holy separated set apart for God himself they, the earth is the Lord's and all that's thereof everything is God's and yet when you set apart the first fruits there is a demonstration that this is actually especially set apart for you, Jesus, for you, the Lord, that Yahweh. This is, this is separate for you. 
And secondly, it was a demonstration when the first fruits would come to the temple, a demonstration of the faithfulness of God that he would keep his promises and a demonstration to those bringing the offering that God will keep his promise in the future. Because just as he called his people out of slavery and he sustained them in the wilderness and he provided for them every single day, he will continue to provide for them. So just as you give away precious gifts of the harvest, it is a declaration that God is faithful and he will provide and more is coming behind you so that you can trust in him you say Lord here's, here's a first fruit like this is scary because I, I need more provision and there's a family to feed and there's, there's life that's got to go on but I'm going to give this to you and as you give this you are declaring with that moment of worship in giving that the Lord keeps his promises and he provides for everything that I need. And so James then says, you Christians are like that first fruit that goes to the... You now, if you are born again by the word of truth, if new life has been brought in your life, then what happens is you are set apart and holy for the Lord. His eye is particularly on the righteous. He loves all the world. He cares for all the world. And yet... We are told that his people are the apple of his eye. And his eye watches over the earth, watching over the righteous. That you and I are set apart particularly for the Lord. Everyone can get in on this. You just need to say yes to Jesus. And his eye is set particularly on us. And we are, as it were, the first fruits of all creation that is to follow. So yes, life and the world is broken around us. There is pressures and difficulties and work and etc. does not work as it should to. We are continually walking into difficulties and tensions and pressures and weights and exhaustion and loneliness. We continually walk in this broken life. But as our new birth declares, even creation itself is going to follow us into the presence of the Lord and everything else is going to be redeemed. There is more to come after you and I. So we are actually a living declaration, a demonstration to ourselves, to each other, to the world, that redemption is following us. Let me just read this, because Paul crystallizes this thought in Romans 8. He says, for the creation, all the brokenness that causes trials in this world, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly, don't we? As we, as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope, we are saved. What Christ has done in us, the first fruits of all creation, in his resurrection, as we follow him, we find ourselves the first fruits in the presence of the Lord now with creation yet to receive its redemption. So the pain of this life will not always be so. You are a declaration to yourself and to the church and to anyone who would listen that there is a redemption that is going to roll out across all of the face of the earth so that all wrongs are righted, that all injustices will be made right and healing will come to the nations. Amen? Don't be deceived, church. Let's look to Jesus, the glorious giver of all things. Amen? Amen. Amen.